Hello, everyone, and welcome to 35mm Perspective, a podcast where we watch movies and tell you what we thought about them. I am your host today, my name is Jacob Coots, and I am joined by my co-host, Grant Velveeta. Grant, how are you doing today? Uh, it's just cheesy, Jacob. <laughs> I'm uh, riding high on a Tampa Bay win over the Houston Astros. We'll see if that We'll see if that still looks as good on Thursday by the time this podcast is out. But for now, I'm riding high on that. How are you doing this week? Uh, I'm staying afloat. It's been uh, a really weird ride, uh, but not nearly as weird as the movie we watched this week, which was The Joker. But before we get into our review of The Joker, we've got some other business to take care of as usual we're going to be reviewing some trailers that we saw this week and then we'll slide on into our review of the joker so i'm excited to talk about both the trailers and the movie this week jacob because spoiler alert everybody we disagreed again second week in a row so let's move right on into the trailers and then into our review of the film So before we get into the saucy disagreement on Joker, I we have two trailers, both of which look pretty good this week. The first is of the same company in comic origin. It's uh, Birds of Prey and the Fantabulous Emancipation of One Harley Quinn. I Hell of a title. Yeah, I really think they should have stopped after Birds of Prey, but... It's very much the aesthetic they're trying to craft with that, I think. Interesting choice of director for this film. I do like that the director is female, since it's a female team-up movie. But it's really her freshman effort, or I should say first-year effort, uh, on the big screen. She's really only done shorts, and there was one film festival film called Dead Pigs, and that had very interesting reviews, so seems like they chose an artsy type director for this film which of course features harley quinn one of the eye candies and most liked parts about suicide squad i don't know if this is a direct follow-up to suicide squad because it involves her splitting up with the joker so the tagline is after splitting with the joker harley quinn joins superheroes black canary huntress and renee montoya to save a young girl from an evil crime lord Grant, I, I don't know. What did you think about this trailer? Uh, it was an interesting trailer. You're right. There's definitely an aesthetic that they're going for. It's reminiscent to me, honestly, kind of of the Suicide Squad trailer. Very punchy, very flashy, lots of bright colors. Maybe they're trying to keep that aesthetic up for Harley Quinn. Like you said, she was one of the, I think, most well-received parts of Suicide Squad, despite a uh, a mountain of kind of disgust that it got from a lot of people. <laughs> it is confusing where exactly in the universe this lies, but it could be interesting because I know that following kind of the fall apart of Suicide Squad and Justice League and a lot of other things, DC has been eyeing more of one-off films and they're moving away from their DC cinematic universe. So maybe this is a foray into that. Yeah. Maybe this is sort of splitting from that storyline by having the breakup and opening the idea of just these one-offs or even trilogies or whatever they're shooting for 
as opposed to having this really interconnected universe that Marvel has. Although I'd argue that the Marvel Cinematic Universe isn't as cohesive as some believe. I mean, you just look at Thanos. He changed colors like three or four times uh, and, and a bunch of other stuff. So, I mean, logistically, this is a lot nicer to not have to try to force and these directors to weave in other members of that universe. Uh, and, and I think in the grand scheme of things, it's going to just be better for writers too and uh, and whatnot. I know some directors have cited problems working with Marvel because of their cinematic universe being forced to fit certain things in, even if it doesn't go with the story. Um, but I really just think DC has seen this moment of opportunity, and I wonder if they're trying to cash in on that after Marvel's big phase concluded. It seems like they're now starting to promote and release films on characters that are really more adored in their arsenal. You have a Joker movie, you have Harley Quinn, uh, you, you have Wonder Woman getting their own, uh, her own film again, a, a sequel, I think, and also Suicide Squad 2, which is being filmed by a reputable and fun scrum team-up movie director and James Gunn. Uh, very typecast as that type of director now, but it seems to fit the bill. So it seems like they're really trying to push for competition in sort of a unique way, not a direct cinematic universe, but banking on what momentum they do have, which isn't much. Well, and let's not forget, too, that they're in at least pre-production of a new Batman movie, at least a single Batman movie, and who knows, maybe it'll be more. I mean, there's been some backlash because Robert Pattinson was cast for the role, but, you know, I think that that's just backlash because people like to be, the internet likes to be outraged about something. And I mean, you know, they were initially outraged. I haven't heard much more about it since, but you know, they, I think you're right. They're trying to bring it back to more character driven stories, which is, I think generally speaking, what they do well, where they can maybe beat Marvel, especially because Marvel works on such a grand scale now. I mean, when you think about it, that's how the MCU started with a bunch of these independent disparate films about these characters and eventually the cinematic universe came together so i think if dc's trying to turn a corner and do something like that this is actually a step in the right direction and certainly better than the attempt with batman vs superman where they tried to set up an entire universe in an email uh and and then just follow that up with justice league more or less so uh, this seems like they're trending in the right direction. Fingers crossed on that, because I'd like to see more competition for Disney and just really for comic book films in general. Yeah, it's interesting, too, the choices that they made for their supporting characters. Black Canary makes sense because uh, she's a well-known uh, superhero seeing the success of Arrow and the DC TV universe. I mean, I think, it, again, originally that was supposed to be the DC Cinematic Universe, but they've kind of tapered off of that but they've had some successes there i mean arrows on what like it's sixth season or something like that somewhere around there i think it's nine but they're concluding this season so it's it's about to wrap up but they're also starting flash that's keeping on you have batgirl or something like that in, in addition to supergirl so they definitely have that TV cinematic universe planned, and so maybe for the big screen, they just decided to take that more character-driven route, knowing that 
You know, the TV side of things has been working pretty well for them on the CW. We'll be able to find out more about this film as it approaches, and we'll certainly be watching and reviewing this. It releases on February 7th of next year, 2020. Okay, this next one I'm... I shouldn't say really excited for. I'm hesitantly excited for because it's the third in a trilogy, but it's the first in the trilogy chronologically, but not in release order. It's it's The Kingsman, which is a prequel to The Kingsman series, which uh, was directed by Matthew Vaughn, who is also directing this move. Uh, excuse me, directing this movie. He also directed X-Men First Class, which was generally well received. So I'm I'm excited for this because I really liked at least the first Kingsman movie. The second one was a bit more hit or miss, but this looks really interesting uh, as it follows the kind of the beginnings of the Kingsman, it seems like, because as a collection of the history's worst tyrants and criminal masterminds gather to plot a war to wipe out millions, one man and his protege must race against time to stop them. And some of the people in this film are Ray Fiennes, Gemma Arton, uh, Reese Fons, Matthew Good, Tom Hollander, Harris Dickinson, Daniel Brühl, and Jamon Hansu, uh, and Charles Dance, Charles Dance being uh, Tywin Lannister for any Game of Thrones fans out there, amongst a lot of other things as well. He's a fairly well-known actor, especially in the UK. But, I mean, the the trailer was a lot of fun. It initially, it makes you do a double take because you get kind of the Kingsman feel from it towards the beginning, but there's a couple of fake outs and then you're thinking maybe this could be related to that, but also it kind of just looks like all the war movies coming out right now. And then you get the reveal of the Kingsman storefront and you know what it's going to be. I don't know. I, it felt like a pretty solid trailer to me. Very solid trailer. It doesn't reveal too much, but it piques your interest. And if you're a fan of this franchise as you are, and I am it, just has that classic Kingsman vibe and feel to it, which is what makes it so unique. A very fun movie, over-the-top action, Very uh, even the camera work is very specific to this franchise. So I trust Matthew Vaughn. He has a very strong uh, directing history, as you mentioned, the first two films and First Class, and also Kick-Ass, which was... I, I don't even remember watching that, but he just really has fun with his movies for the most part. So as long as they don't try to do too much like that second film did, I think this is going to be a very strong entry. And usually prequels tend to do pretty well, especially if they're released, you know, third or fourth in some kind of series line. Yeah, and I'm hoping that this can kind of go back to its roots. Like you said, the second movie almost felt like tried to do too much. We've talked about this a number of times, the... One of the things that I heard most about the first Kingsman movie was it was the best movie I never meant to see <laughs> because there were so many people I know that accidentally ended up seeing this movie because they they were just like, hey, let's go see a movie. That was the only one they could get tickets to or they were going to see a movie and they got movie times wrong and they said, well, we can just, you know, we can go see this instead. Like, I literally never saw a trailer for it. A bunch of people I know who saw it never saw a trailer for it. But they said they kind of just ended up there almost on accident, and they loved it. And the first movie was really, really good. Again, the second movie, I think, felt like it had a lot to live up to and wasn't as great, and the some of the critical and audience reception showed that. And so I'm hoping they learn from those mistakes here, and I don't want to say bring it down to earth, because Kingsman isn't exactly down to earth, but... 
route themselves back in the direction of the first film, maybe. But either way, we will find out on February 14th, 2020, Valentine's Day, one week after Birds of Prey. Uh, that's the biologist and magic player in me talking. We'll be right back with our review of the film Joker. Uh, yeah, so without further ado, let's just get right into our beef. Where's the beef? All right, and this is the moment everyone's been waiting for, the moment that I think we've been waiting for, the feature presentation, which this week is Joker, directed by Todd Phillips, who also directed the Hangover films, the film War Dogs, and he also wrote the story for Borat. So this guy's got uh, a colorful history, now moving into this kind of uh, dark and gritty DC reboot origin story (laughs) kind of thing. Uh, We had Joaquin Phoenix playing Arthur Fleck slash Joker, Robert De Niro as Murray Franklin, the talk show host, Zazie Beetz as Sophie Dumond, uh, Arthur's neighbor in his uh, apartment building, Francis Conroy as Penny Fleck, Arthur's mother, and Bretty Cullen as Thomas Wayne. The role was actually originally uh, going to Alec Baldwin, who dropped two days after the announcement due to some scheduling conflicts that not totally... uh, sure about at the moment uh there is no post credit scene in case anybody was wondering um so no need to stick around after the credits if you're waiting for one there is nothing there you should still appreciate all the people that worked on the movie in the credits but if you're only going to stick around for a post credit scene there is not one uh an interesting note i think an interesting note is that the budget for this is 55 million dollars which is, you know, a a decent chunk of change. But you have to consider that, again, you've got Joaquin Phoenix, Robert De Niro, and Francis Conroy, who's actually done quite a bit as well. And so for that reason, especially when you consider that it's a DC Comics film, $55 isn't a lot of money, especially compared to, say, Suicide Squad's $175 million budget. So... And, I mean, Jacob, I'm just going to hand this over to you because you had another interesting fact about the budget and the opening for this movie. A very interesting fact indeed. So, very small budget relative to most comic book films. A lot of practical effects. I don't think there was any CGI. Well, maybe some CGI, but nothing over the top. Uh, And it did exceptionally well. It broke the domestic record for a film in October. The prior record holder was Venom, around $80 million, And this hit $93 million for that opening slate from Thursday to Saturday. So, very strong opening worldwide. It was over a quarter of a billion. So, people went out to see this movie, despite some drama beforehand involving... Uh, in cells, and I think we touch on that a little bit later, but it didn't deter people from going to watch the movie, and that probably due to the strong word of mouth that this film got. The audiences gave this a very good score, regardless of what aggregator you look at. On Rotten Tomatoes, got a 90%, and on Metacritic, a 9.3. The critics were a little bit more split, Still decent scores, but not nearly as strong as the audience. It got a 69 from the critics. Nice. And a 58 on Metacritic. 
As far as cinema score goes, it got a B plus, which kind of falls in line with most R-rated films. So all in all, it was uh, moderately well-received, and I think that just starts with the acting in this film. Hakeem Phoenix really gives his all here, I think, and that sticks out the most. That's what at least I've heard the most about, is his performance as the Joker. He's a really weird guy, though. I was watching some review, uh, some you know, interviews he had about the movie, and he was just lying in some of them, giving the interviewer false information or saying he made some stuff up, but he didn't, but he did. So if you have a minute, just go watch an interview with this guy. It's it's going to be a good time. He also looks very uncomfortable doing it, though. Yeah, I was going to say, there there's a lot of interest surrounding him being uh, Joker or Arthur Fleck. He's... You know, he's acted in a number of films. You've seen him in a lot of various stuff playing almost character pieces. And and that's even more interesting because prior to this film's, like, conception or, like, its true conception, because there had been talk about DC making a Joker movie for a while, but Joaquin Phoenix had expressed interest in being the lead in some sort of, he called it a low-budget character study type of film about a comic book villain. I'm sure... The part of that was seeing the Marvel Cinematic Universe success, and everybody kind of wanted to get their get their take on it. But when uh, Todd Phillips, the director and writer for Joker, brought the script to Warner Brothers, the studio actually originally pushed for him to get Leonardo DiCaprio for the role, especially because Martin Scorsese was originally set to uh, like produce the film, and he's good friends with DiCaprio. But Phillips actually refused saying that Joaquin Phoenix was basically the only lead that he would consider and that the treatment script had been written with Joaquin Phoenix in mind for the character. Um, The script also, if anybody's interested, is sort of loosely based on The Killing Joke, which showed an iteration of the Joker's origin story. It also maybe showed Joker's death, although it's not in an official panel, so there's been a lot of controversy and questions about that and not just from the killing joke phillips has also said that they drew a lot of influence from a lot of different comics but you know there's killing joke has a lot of the similar uh themes and ideas to this film definitely the killing joke i actually mentioned several times in the spoiler section but there's just a bunch of references and cameos if you want to go into this film as informed as you can be without knowing about this story um, watch the king of comedy taxi driver two films from um, martin that are just really i, I don't want to say they're based around this film like I, they're not copies but there's a lot of inspiration taken from that again he was initially going to produce the film he read the script for this so those have a lot of uh, he pays a lot of homage in joker to them and also just the dark knight other joker involvements are referenced here too so there's more uh, there's some homework if you want to catch everything in this movie yeah definitely and i mean i'm i think i generally was more of a dc guy than you but there's you know as with all comics there's a lot of iterations of a lot of different things so i'm sure that there's stuff that i missed so you know we throw our twitter handles out at the end of the episode please tweet at least at me 
if not also at Jacob, and let me know some of the things that I missed, because I am very interested, because I'm sure I missed a bunch, and we both did, I bet, and I would love to hear from the audience about what we missed. For sure. Something we didn't miss, though, is the name Arthur Fleck. Obviously, it's Joker doesn't really have this clear origin in the comics, and so there was some stir early on about having a Joker origin film. Is that going to take away from the mystery of it? And usually it's considered a sin to even give him a name. When a name has been given to him, it's Jack Napier. In this movie, it's Arthur Fleck, and I think part of that was just making it its own piece. They didn't really want to... uh, Again, this isn't clearly derived from one specific story. It's this amalgamation of a bunch of different stuff. So uh, if you're looking for any uh, references to the comics, it's not in the name, which I thought was pretty interesting that they chose Arthur. I don't know why I think it, I don't know if they know why either. Uh, Cause it, there's a lot of just messages in this film that uh, you, that we dive into at the end. Yeah, absolutely. There's a, I mean, I, I feel like truly, at least on my end, there's not a lot that I can say in the spoiler free section of this so i'm just gonna leave everybody with you know with some facts how about that um well before i get into the facts i will say the acting i think is generally good and albeit a bit minimal you know we only listed uh what like five six people in the cast and that is effectively all the cast all the main cast anyway that you're going to see so generally those actors i feel like put on a good performance for what they were doing but the acting, uh, it's it's less towards the audience, if that makes sense. It's I'm having a hard time describing it, but it's it's a lot more in the subtlety, which it was interesting to watch. But beyond saying that, mo- most everything else I have to say, I kind of have to save for the spoiler section. So again, let's let's talk about some facts because there were some weird and interesting things that happened during production and filming. Like for example, Joaquin Phoenix lost a ton of weight for this role which if you've seen the trailer, I'm sure you know and recognize, like you can very clearly... 52 pounds. Yeah, you can see like ribs, his spine, all sorts of things, and he like, uh, you know, his shoulder blades, and he contorts himself all weird sometimes, and especially because he lost weight, it's like just, you know, visceral and almost inhuman looking. And because he lost this weight, a lot of reshoots were actually almost impossible, And because of that, Todd Phillips and his writing partners would sometimes rewrite scenes the night before they would shoot the scene, and the actors would get the new scripts during their hair and makeup sessions, and they'd have to kind of memorize these lines almost on the fly, which made for a really interesting environment, which, for the idea of the movie, I think actually played to their advantage. It worked kind of well. Um, Additionally, during filming, Phoenix would sometimes just storm off set because he sort of lost his self-control and needed to compose himself. Even so, though, the one actor that he actually never walked out on uh, during a scene was Robert De Niro. Um, and But De Niro even said that Phoenix was, like, really intense, as he should be, which is true for the character that he was playing, and especially in the way that he was playing him. He needed to, I think, very much be in character and stay in character. And, to be clear, and to send a couple of uh, pieces of advice to Jared Leto, you can stay in character as the Joker without going absolutely insane and sending your castmates used condoms and dead animals in the mail. You don't have to do that to get in character for the Joker. And if anybody wants to defend him on that, 
please feel free to bring it at me because that is not necessarily what the Joker is. So you don't need to do that to stay in character. I mean, Phoenix was apparently, again, really intense and a little bit difficult to work with at times, but that seems much more in line with uh, what he Well, that and he, you know, lost 52 pounds, so he's probably a little bit grouchy as oh, well. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, additionally, there was this weird complaint to uh, SAG, the Studio Actors Guild, regarding extras who were apparently locked in a subway car for more than three hours, which is a SAG violation due to uh, breaks, and I think there's also some safety concerns as well, because... Um, several of the actors in the subway car were banging on the windows asking to be let out and were either ignored or it wasn't uh, done. Well, and they had to urinate in between the the cars, that spot in between them. That, that's uh, that's true. Uh, apparently that all got cleared up when a SAG representative came to set and it supposedly never happened again from what I was able to read. But an interesting note, I mean, especially if you've seen the film or if you stick around to the... Uh, Spoiler section that almost ties into some of the themes that uh, that the movie touches on. Um, but additionally, just a couple other interesting facts. The film originally premiered at the Venice Film Festival on August 31st, where it won the Golden Lion, which is the most prestigious award at the Venice Film Festival. Only one film wins a year, and this year it went to Joker, which again surprising when like we've talked about previously if 12 years ago you told somebody that a a super it's not a superhero movie but you know a comic book movie i guess was going to win the golden lion at the venice film festival people would have laughed in your face they would have told you that that would never happen and yet here we are and additionally this is the first batman or batman universe film to receive an r rating or at least live action batman film to receive an r rating and it's definitely R. So before we jump into the spoilers, just want to say uh, there is some disturbing behavior in this film and some violence close up. They don't really shy away from that on the camera. So uh, don't take your kids to see this movie. It is not a kid's movie by any means. There were some kids in my theater and they did not enjoy this movie. So just leave them at home. Batman's not even in this movie. So... They won't like it. Uh, it's a very adult film. So wanted to say that because I've seen some people comment, oh, my kids didn't like this movie and I had to leave the theater. No, duh. Yeah, and before we move into our spoiler section, Jacob, if you had to rate this film out of 10, what would you give it? Like I mentioned before, and you're about to see this, we had some disagreements here. We did. And I lean more toward the audience side with my rating on this one. I really did like it. There was a lot to unpack afterwards. I, I had to think for a couple of days on this, but it's my highest score I've given to date. I gave it an eight and a half. And, well, I lean more critic side here. Um, you're right. There's a lot to unpack, and I think maybe we just unpacked it in different ways. Um, which again, a lot more of this we'll get into in the spoiler section. I gave it a five and a half. Like I said, the acting was uh, pretty impeccable. The camera work and set design worked well, I think, for what they were trying. I don't want to say for what they were trying to do. What I'll say is the camera work and set design worked well for what they did, but not what they're trying to do. I'll talk more about that in the spoiler section, but it didn't quite hit home with me. Um, some of it felt like 
shock value and I'm not interested in that. Again, it's so, some of the issues that I take with this interestingly actually are some of the similar issues that I take with Midsummer, where bits just felt like they happened because the writers decided they needed to shock somebody at some point and I feel like if you do that without a ton of reason, you don't need to show it at all. So if you haven't seen this film yet, pause the podcast now, go watch it if you dare, and come back. We're still going to be here. Even if you close your app, you can reopen and go to this timestamp. So give us a pause, watch the film, and come back and see what we thought and see if your thoughts line up with our thoughts. They they may have been. I definitely like the route they took, though. I very much like the more grounded realism in these films. You saw that in the Dark Knight trilogy by Nolan. He gave the characters a more grounded, realistic feel. And even on the Marvel side of things, Thanos was a character who in the comics was in love with death, and he just wanted to impress her. So that's why he wanted to kill half the universe. And in the Infinity War movie, obviously, it was a more philosophical reason. So I think by giving the characters a more raw origin or a more realistic origin, I, I think you at least open them up to empathy a little bit more and get away from the more comic booky origins, which some of the public might not care about. But it could have potentially upset some hardcore comic book fans. I, okay, Jacob, I have a philosophical, not philosophical, I guess, but I have, a, I have a question posed to you that was actually posed to me after seeing this film. Do you think that Joaquin Phoenix will win any awards for his performance in this? Because I think that you and I can probably both agree that one of the shining pieces of this film was absolutely his performance. Do you think that it merits any sort of award? Having seen as many movies as I have this year, and seeing how well he acted in this film even without that knowledge I think he certainly deserves it I mean to go into character and lose all that weight and to have just this I mean he contort not only is his verbal acting great his nonverbal acting is just impeccable and it really it's unsettling at times but it's it feels just like, he became the Joker for that. And so I th will the Academy give it to him? I don't know. I think for the most part, even. Again, the critics didn't hate this movie. Uh, and 
the group that did, I wasn't surprised by. Um, but I, I do think it was strong enough and well-received by other actors and his peers. Mark Hamill thought this was a great movie, and he really liked it. The classic Joker, uh, animated Joker. So I think he has a strong chance to win an Oscar, and I think he should get that. I just don't know if they'll give it to him. So my thought on that is that I think he'll be nominated, but I don't think he'll win. Again, I think that Hollywood tends to be very uppity about itself. Um, I think he's going to be nominated mostly because there's going to be a certain subsect of uh, the Academy that feels like the audience is going to want to see him nominated, but I don't think they're ultimately going to give it to him. I mean, I don't know. Who knows? I think, again... They could have released this at any time. October is probably a pretty solid choice, but I think that they probably did want to release it this year, similar to why I think the Goldfinch wanted to be released this year, because they did want to potentially put it up for consideration for uh, a number of different Oscars. And, and his acting performance definitely has to be one of the biggest things to be considered. It's the best chance this movie has, and I, I think your assessment's probably the most fair they give him the nomination as to not cause a stir with the audience and then someone else gets it. It'll be interesting uh, when how this podcast changes during Oscar season. We'll have some fun discussions, I think, about that. Well, it's going to be interesting how this podcast changes the Oscars, Jacob. They're, they're really going to listen to us. I think our opinions mean, mean <laughs> a lot to the Academy, and they are going to listen to us. Yeah, actually, the Oscars are just puppets for 35-millimeter perspective, if you were wondering. Yeah, they, I think they're going to draw a lot of influence from our paper plate awards, if I'm being honest <laughs> with you, so... Yeah, the acting, obviously, very strong. There was, I'll just talk about what I didn't love at first because the, it's a longer list of what I did like. There were a couple of cheesy moments and caricatures and characterizations of people. Like the kids in the beginning beating him up after taking his sign, literally shouting, beat him up, kick him. That's, that's not real dialogue. That's not what kids say. Um, and the other scene that really just stood out to me is like a... <sighs> It just seemed a little bit forced for the bad day narrative. The mom yelling at him for bothering her kid. Like the kid was laughing and having a really good time. I think if they wanted to convey that differently, the kid could have just been crying and he could have just been sitting there doing nothing and she would have blamed him. So it just it felt weird. Maybe they really wanted to drive home that he was just down on his luck or something, but you know, for scenes that ultimately added up to his transformation it's not that they could have happened but they were somewhat contrived i guess yeah it, it felt like i mean it's a movie they have to put him in these situations but yeah it did feel contrived and very much like they decided hey we need some sort of initial catalyst for this i i don't feel like writing anything you don't feel like writing anything let's have him get beat up at work and and have someone yell at him on the bus <laughs> you know give him a real bad day but like so let, let me first start by saying one thing that I liked about the that latter scene that I mentioned is that that's where we get the first introduction of his uncontrollable laughter being a condition due to um, what we find out later was probably abuse from a stepfather or from his mother's boyfriend and head trauma, which that was actually a really interesting and compelling idea. I, I really did like that. That was something very cool that I felt like they did with the character that helped to humanize it. 
if not normalize it. And, and so that was kind of interesting. Something that I didn't like, though, is so, yeah, he had this bad day where he got, you know, beat up and this mother yelled at him. And, you know, there were other things where, like, he loses his job and he's getting unfairly uh, sort of punished for things at his job. And I I get that he clearly has, um, you know, some issues and so is not necessarily normal, but I kept thinking, like, you know, the lengths that he goes to is not how a normal person would react, which, again, is probably one of the main themes of this movie, but part of the problem is is that I felt like they were constantly jumping a line between making him human and relatable and then making him kind of crazy, because there were definitely scenes where we were meant to feel bad for him. Like, the again, the scene on the bus with the mother, we you know, we as an audience kind of feel bad for him because, like you said, the kid's laughing and Arthur is just kind of playing with the kid and he's had a shitty day, supposedly, because it looks like he got beat up that day and so he's actually able to bring someone a smile and make someone laugh, so he's having a good time. And then there are other moments that perforate the film throughout where he just seems like he's kind of crazy and insane and the the one in particular that comes to mind is when he is at Arkham getting his mother's files and he just kind of snaps on a dime and like steals it and is kind of yelling at the guy and running out of there and goes kind of insane and ignores you know social norms even though he was adhering to them a moment before and I guess you could argue that it's meant to show that people aren't one-dimensional, but more to me, it came off, it just made the character feel inconsistent, and, you know, I get that Joker is kind of inconsistent, but it, it, again, I'm having a hard time putting words to it, but it didn't feel like the right kind of inconsistent, like, Heath Ledger's Joker felt very inconsistent, as in you didn't know what he was going to do, because he could go either way, but this just felt like it was jarring and jumping back and forth, um, I, I mean, the other way that you could kind of read it is that, like, uh, people with mental illnesses can sort of snap at the drop of a hat, but that's a pretty negative and fairly untrue message, I feel like, and that kind of identifies and segregates a subsect of people, and if that's the route that they wanted to go with that, that's a huge, that's a huge yikes for me, friend. I would have to disagree that it made him inconsistent, you know, especially at the Arkham scene, the guy had, you know, he's going, he just found out that his father, his whole life might be a lie kind of thing. And then the guy kind of trails off as he's saying something traumatic about his past. And obviously he's very troubled. He's on seven different medications and all that. Um, so obviously more than your typically mentally unhealthy person, he had done something that caused him to be in this step program, which also shut down. That was a very realistic thing, cutting government funding for troubled people and uh, mental health positive programs. But I think that might cause a lot of even more mentally stable people to snap. And so he grabs that and then he sees that, you know, he was adopted. And, you know, that was kind of his final breaking point before coming becoming the Joker. So, I mean... I guess that can be received different ways. That's the thing with art. But for me, I just kind of took that as like, you know, he was barely fitting in at these, in these norms. And as we find out later on, you know, there's a lot of unreliable narrator stuff going on. So it's not even fully sure what he thought he did correctly and 
what actually happened kind of thing. For instance, the... um, It jumps into a completely different point, but with him and his quote-unquote girlfriend, where he's doing stand-up and he sees her laughing and he thinks he's doing a really good job. Point in fact, he just wasn't doing a good job at all when he was eating with her at dinner. You thought he was fitting in, but he was really eating by himself and maybe even talking to himself, acting like she was there. So it felt like he was just barely holding on as it was with everything that was going on. And at that moment, it was like, okay, social norms are out the window. And and I thought that made sense based on the severity of what that document contained. Yeah, I, I that's a fair point. And I mean, again, I guess agree to disagree here. The, the other one that uh, particularly came to mind was, and again, this you can obviously speak more to this than me having a bigger background in psychology how how he was acting on the uh uh on Murray's show seemed a little inconsistent like kind of snapping back and forth a couple of times for various different reasons i mean again you could look at that uh in a number of different ways but something that you said that i want to expound on a little bit is that you were talking about the realism of government funding being cut and I think one thing that we can probably agree on here, if nothing else, is that, well, here, let's back up and says that, and say that Fleck, as Joker, says that his actions as a Joker are not political, and that was a message echoed by Todd Phillips, the director, who said that the film, you know, while it may have many similarities to our society, is not meant to be political, which is an interesting comment to me, given that he stopped doing comedy films due to political reasons, because he said they were too difficult to do today, given, quote, woke culture. And so he moved into War Dogs and some more serious films. And I also, I can't help but wonder if casting Robert De Niro as a late night TV personality, the kind who typically talks at least a little bit about um, political issues, was, you know, if it was an act of choice, because he has been outspoken in his dislike of the current presidential administration. And so, I don't know. I mean, I think that despite all of the comments from Phillips and people surrounding the film, it's hard to say that this isn't a political film. I mean, I don't know if you would agree with that, but it, I feel like that's kind of, you're going to have to do a lot of convincing to make me believe that it isn't at least in part political. It certainly makes statements about society and political commentary, the media, things I'll touch on in just a couple of minutes. But the thing that, the only thing I'd say is De Niro was probably cast in this movie and in that specific role because of his involvement in Taxi Driver and The King of Comedy. It fit very nicely with the parts he had played in that movie. Uh, and so I think that one was probably more homage than anything, especially Hollywood. It's a very liberal type of business. So if they wanted to find someone outspoken, it, it'd be harder to find someone who wasn't outspoken, I'd almost say. But I definitely don't buy the fact that this didn't have any messages behind it. There's just too many similarities, too many touches on real issues that would make it too improbable for me to, to buy that narrative. Granted, I don't think it's as polarizing as people said it was going to be pre-release. And all those people, yeah, I don't know. It was built up to be this very groundbreaking, shaking film. And I don't think it really hit that status there's been certainly been more political movies. There's been more violent movies. There's been more riot anarchist type movies. So it it doesn't stand out as the front runner in any of those categories to me, but it's definitely political. 
Yeah, and and on a similar note, um, I can see the concern because there was a lot of concern surrounding this film for quote incel violence. Uh, for those who are not familiar, incel is shorthand for um, involuntary celibates. That is people who are celibate not by their own choice. I don't want to get too deep into that. Because uh, Grant is one. <laughs> it's personal. <laughs> per- yeah, sure. Uh, <laughs> go, go to your own uh, research if you would like, you know, taking a lot of what you read. Be be a filter, not a sponge, um, with relation to not just that, but a lot of things. Um, anyway, I can see outwardly why there might have been concern for violence because of this movie or surrounding this movie or at premieres, especially because supposedly there were plans online, um, whether real or not, to incite violence at some of the premieres. Like, they had a closed red carpet for the premiere of this film, for example, because of it. And I know that a lot of theaters were banning costumes and hoods and masks and, you know, a a lot of things because there was was some slight fear. There were a lot of people that um, were talking about wanting to sit closer to either the front of the theater to be close to an exit or on the end of a row in case they needed to get out, which maybe wasn't uh, founded, maybe was a little bit overblown. I'm not here to necessarily talk about that, but I I think it's a little bit off base to say that it was all, or that the concern should be about incel violence, especially based solely on the content of the film, because this is, I mean, I'll admit, I'll be the first to admit that this is kind of splitting hairs here, but it was the people that it would invite violence to would just be outsiders at large people that, um, you know, have been let down by society for a number of reasons, whether that be systematic racism or again, in involuntary celibacy or, uh, people who, like you said, maybe did need government funded help and their funding got cut, things like that. And I think that those groups beyond, extend beyond just the initially targeted groups and they were targeted by various media outlets and government memos as being potentially dangerous to this film which is kind of a bit of sick irony because if these people had watched the film they would maybe see the message that that can sometimes be dangerous and that you need to identify people as people and recognize everybody as having individualistic problems versus thinking that you can quash people down into specific groups and I, I don't know the it, that storyline that was pushed I think was a bit overblown and again kind of funny if you've seen the film because it does feel a little bit ironic going back to you know, jumping off of that and going into probably some of the deeper messages in this film I think it's first important to just establish again that unreliable narrator element like having that whole relationship with Sophie being fake and other parts, especially the ending. This is very much in line with prior Jokers. For instance, uh, Heath Ledger giving a different uh, story for where he got his scars in The Dark Knight, and a line from The Killing Joke really resonates here. If I'm going to have a past, I prefer it to be multiple choice. And for just what this film did and and how uncertain you were at some points, I think it met meshed very well there. The Joker is this character that's very uncertain and unreliable, and you saw it in this movie. I was not expecting that reveal with Sophie, but it made me feel a lot better, because that was the other thing I didn't like, was their relationship together. 
it didn't really feel like it fit. And when that happened, I was like, oh, duh. And I actually really liked it at that point um, because it, again, fell into the past behavior of the Joker. Yeah, it did make a lot of sense. The I don't want to say I expected it. It didn't feel right. It's it's an odd thing, but their relationship made me kind of uncomfortable, and I couldn't place a finger on why. And then when the reveal happened, I was like, oh, that's why, because it's not right and it's not real. Um, the way that they did it, I thought was was very, very clever. Again, him sitting in her living room, and she is freaked out and scared because this man that she's interacted with a handful of times, maybe, that only kind of knows who he is, is sitting in her living room because in his mind they're together and they're dating, but she barely knows him. It's It was a very powerful and interesting and impactful reveal, especially when one of the other themes that I feel like was touched on, if only slightly, was the way that m- men can sometimes have an idea about the relationships that they have with women or feeling like women owe them something. And that's shown in a number of different ways between, you know, uh, him and her and the relationship that they have or rather don't have. It can be showed by the three uh, Wayne employees on the subway kind of harassing that woman. I mean, there's, there's small subtle nods to it. Didn't feel super well explored. It feels like a couple of times they started to and then didn't, which is another place that some of my criticism comes from, is that there was, again, a lot of underdeveloped uh, ideas here. But yes, that reveal was very interesting and powerful and not not exactly what I saw coming. Again, I knew something was wrong, but I couldn't put my finger on it until they hit that reveal. I couldn't either. It it felt wrong. I was like, well, maybe she's uh, modified Harley Quinn, especially when she said, good, they deserve it kind of thing, I almost thought they were going to pull, you know, like the Michelle MJ reveal in Homecoming, Spider-Man, you know, they had this character with a different name, but she fit a classic role. I thought they were almost going to go that route with it. Uh, And that ended up not being the case. And I I very much liked that different direction they took it. And that led into sort of the revealed right before his crack into the Joker. And that's where... You know, the la- the end of the film is where a lot, a lot happens. And I, I kind of liked it. I mean, I, again, growing up where I did in Chicago, I it wasn't improbable to see these types of things, this violence, these living conditions. It, this film was partially about depicting that unrest uh, from inner city folk and, and living in these unlivable conditions, that disconnect between the upper 1% and politicians and their constituents or what I'd call real people, uh, people barely making it, surviving, taking public transportation and dealing with the dangers of that. I mean, maybe even going back to that bus scene, maybe the mom just didn't want her kid interacting with strangers because of a real safety thing, because that's certainly a concern. So, you know, I thought the film did a good job, of course, in a dramatized way of showing these, for instance, uh, Thomas Wayne and his seemingly empathic view of the public. And of course, behind the scenes, it just wasn't the case. He was very much a, what I'd say is a bad person. And so I, I thought that was an interesting take. And I really did like that message. Maybe it just resonated with where I grew up and how I grew up, but um, probably more fitting for the times, I'd say. And on top of that, also how the news outlet portrayed the wealthy white victims, even though they were harassing and very privileged people on the news, they 
cast it as a tragedy and all these sorts of things, even though people in the city felt this disgruntlement maybe because maybe they had known these men or uh, maybe it was just that they were wealthy, they were displeased. But th these are rare, very real feelings that people feel nowadays, and it tried to capture that in some way. Yeah, that's... The white savior of them. Sorry. Oh, yeah, I was going to say, I mean, that's true. And we we had some mild discussions about this uh, previously, and maybe some of my... Uh, some of my critiques come from not necessarily being able to relate to a lot of the groups and characters shown here because I was very privileged and lucky enough to grow up in, you know, a white, relatively affluent family. And, you know, I never had to experience the majority of those, again, quote unquote, inner city struggle kind of things. Um, you know, I've never been a woman, so I've never had to deal with uh, some of the harsher things that they dealt with in this film. I've never necessarily felt like an outsider, at least to all of society, in the same way that Arthur and some of his various cohorts do so. Maybe where it loses points for me is just... I mean, we've we've talked about it... We talked about it a little bit in The Goldfinch, where people tend to find empathy for characters that they can relate to because they see part of themselves in that, and maybe I just didn't see myself in any of these characters or struggles so I had a little bit of a hard time empathizing with them but that said I, I can see where you're coming from and again looking at a lot of the way that the news portrayed the the wealthy victims and the way that the news and the or media in the film portrayed Thomas Wayne and a lot of these government officials as kind of saviors and I mean Penny Fleck even talks about it that that is rooted very deeply in reality and that's where my comment about this absolutely is a political movie comes from. Yeah, and, and with that message, that's also where I just could say, you know, it's too real to not to not make that statement. And I think it's a good message, so I, I, maybe he just didn't want to polarize individuals and the, you know, make this purposely political so certain groups won't see it because they're offended or, or something. Um, you know, it's it's a tough topic to navigate, so it's... Again, yeah, maybe you didn't grow up in this type of environment or setting. It would be harder to relate to that kind of characters, as we talked about now and, and also in The Goldfinch. One other thing, that big message, I think, was just this dash of compassion uh, or humility or, or realism that it tried to instill. Oh, another line from The Killing Joke is that all it takes is one bad day to reduce the sanest man alive to lunacy. That's how far the world is from where I am. Just one bad day. And, of course, this is a movie, so everything is dramatized, the end result and all of that, becoming the Joker. But one bad day really can change a lot, and it, the butterfly effect is very real. Decisions you have make or even had no say in can end up affecting your life years down the line in ways you never expected. So to not necessarily feel bad for people who end up becoming murderers or criminals or anything like that, but to just get a greater sense of perspective on how they might have ended up there and realize that you yourself are fallible. And if you had rougher conditions or maybe rougher mental struggles, you could end up there too. And so we should be supporting people and creating more programs, funding mental health so that 
persons who experience these troubles or are victims of these troubles just become fewer and further between. Um, I, I very much pulled that out of the film. I don't know if, if you did, but I've just, it's also just a philosophical thought I've been pondering lately is what would happen if we just caught a few more bad breaks than, than we have in our life? You know, where, where could we be? We might be 33 millimeter perspective instead. You never know. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, again, it's, it's an interesting concept. Um, and yeah, a philosophical one at that. And I think it depends upon who you are as a person, what you feel yourself personally leaning towards there. Again, it's, it feels to me like social decorum should sort of take over at some point and recognizing that a, a bad day is just a bad day. But you, that said, you're right. Not everybody can do that. And what if one bad day, you know, piles into dozens? So I, I it is definitely an interesting philosophical or thought experiment, I, uh, I guess, as it were. I mean, an- another interesting, maybe not thought experiment, but something else that they touch on that, again, I, I felt like they gave up on, which bothered me because this is a very interesting topic that I feel like really isn't covered in a lot of today's media and definitely should be, is this this fatherless youth theme that they lean into very heavily, like kind of right at the beginning, and then they just, like I said, completely give up on it throughout the movie. Um, because, you know, Arthur doesn't have his father around. I think it's mentioned once or twice, and then... There's the dream sequence where he's on Murray's show, who says something about how he wished his kids were like uh, Fleck, and then how he's searching for uh, Thomas Wayne to kind of be his father because, and, and he gets mad when Wayne tells him, no, that can't be, he's like, no, that's that's not true. Whether or not it is true or not, Arthur gets very upset by that because, again, I think he's searching for that father figure that he feels like he's missed his whole life, and I don't know, it just, it felt like they gave up on it kind of after that, where they're like, yeah, he doesn't have a dad, and it, that's bad. And that was sort of the ultimate exploration of it, and I feel like they could have explored it more. I mean, you could almost even argue that the kids at the beginning maybe could have showed that, and I think it's kind of meant to show that father figures can heavily impact their kids and show their children, especially young boys, how to grow up. And when we spread this nasty rhetoric, it's it it filters downwards through our children and continues on and on. And I mean, you could also argue that they show, like we talked about earlier, the influence of the media in young, restless, not just youth, but in, in people in general between the way that the media portrayed the wealthy and the way that Arthur looked at Murray at first and was, you know, oh, I'm your biggest fan, and you've influenced me in this and that way, and how media influences us each personally. And these were all themes that I felt like they started to talk about, and then kind of gave up on, which was kind of a bummer, because they were definitely interesting, and they could have been very, very well explored. They didn't really complete that arc of the fatherless youth. Well, I mean, you could say they reintroduced it at the end with... Thomas Wayne getting shot in front of Bruce. <laughs> I thought that was a very well done. Ca- I thought that I liked that cameo a lot. That reference to, uh, you know, creating Batman in some way. 
I don't know if that ends up tying into the Robin Pattinson film. I doubt it, again, because they're not really going for that cinematic universe, but it was one issue that they probably could have explored more. As far as the ending goes, what did you think? Was that... Did you think it was a hallucination or a joke or a dream or or what? How did you interpret that ending? It was very much loose, which fits again with the Joker. But yeah, I had I had some issues with the ending too. Just really the very very last few shots. The the bit with the psychologist was interesting, especially where he's laughing and smoking again, and she asks, "What's so funny?" And he says, "You wouldn't get it." To me, that right there. If I was editing the film, that's the ending. Right when he says, you wouldn't get it, cut to black, the end in yellow letters or whatever, or as he's smoking, the end in yellow letters over his face kind of thing. Um, Because I think he was captured. Again, this doesn't necessarily go, this film doesn't relate to comics or cinematic universe or anything, but in, in Killing Joke, for example, where they drew some inspiration, uh, Joker was originally locked up in Arkham and he escapes and presumably, although I guess we don't specifically see at the end, the implication is that he's locked up in Arkham at the end of this movie too. Um, so I, I would have liked that much better as the ending because the scene, there the not scene, but the shot after it is very confusing because he's walking down the hallway, but he's still got blood on his shoes but in the scene prior to that, he's not, you know, disheveled and broken looking like he was uh, after the events of the the show where he's, you know, beaten and bloodied and he's just been in a car accident and he's been taken by the cops. So I don't know if the implication there was that he beat the psychologist to death, like kicked her to death and then had her blood on his shoes or if it was just for cinematic effect or what. And then him running away from the orderly up and down the hallway, that just seemed like they wanted to throw some slapstick in at the end for literally no good reason. And I didn't love that. Like I said, had they cut it at, um, you wouldn't get it. I feel like it would have been a much more powerful and interesting ending, especially if they were really trying to make a, whatever, you know, pseudo fictionalized biopic of, of Joker. And I don't know, the ending I didn't really love. I liked the ending. Then I liked the second ending. And the third ending with the orderly was the weakest of the three. For me, I thought it was initially going to end with him standing on the truck and, you know, basking in the glory of this movement that he had created. And I thought that's where it was going to end. I I thought that would have been perfectly fine. Then he's smoking and talking to the psychologist and laughs and says he wouldn't get it. And if it had cut out there too, like that's also a really, really good ending. And then the third ending, which, you know, I wasn't as rubbed the wrong way by it, but I don't think it was the strongest. Of the, it was definitely the weakest of the three. And, you know, they maybe they tried to just make it the the Joker ending, the fun. You don't know what happened. I, I don't know. It was... um. It didn't fit with the rest of the movie, and, you know, I don't even really know if if that itself was a hallucination and the whole movie happened and he did escape. My current theory is that he was captured and he, inv- he imagined him standing on top of the car. Uh, so, you know, he did commit the murder and then he was placed in Arkham. And maybe the end is him escaping. He kills the psychologist and then ends up escaping from the orderlies at the end. 
Todd Phillips and him did say they have a lot of gas left in the tank, so even though there's no plans for another Joker currently, maybe they followed this up. Um, but as with the killing joke and uh, you know other Joker takes, it's uh, ending open for interpretation. Was the whole movie in his head? You, d you don't really know. And the ending, that type of humor, didn't really mesh because this wasn't a comedy by any means, and it was the least funny of all the Jokers. Jared Leto, unironically funny. <laughs> um, but the small bits of humor that were in this film really worked. So when he was dancing down the steps after becoming the Joker and the detective saw him dancing, I thought that was kind of funny. And, and really the scene where uh, the little person, uh, he had just murdered the big guy, and the guy's like, what? what's going on, man? And he lets him escape, which I thought, A, showed that he wasn't fully gone because he had compassion for someone who had sympathy toward him. But it was just really funny to see him try to unlock the door. I really wasn't sure if he was going to escape until the, until the scene had actually transferred. Even when he left the room, I thought maybe he was going to run down and kill him. But that was an unexpectedly funny scene in a movie that really wasn't about humor. Yeah, that's that's true. That was an interesting scene, like you said, because he showed compassion for somebody that had been kind to him, which, again, was interesting because I feel like they were, and they've said that they were taking inspiration from all different Jokers, but Joker, generally speaking, I feel like has always sort of had something of a moral code, although it is his own moral code, you know, within his own warped kind of mind and so it was interesting to see how that was at play here very much so and just the last part i wanted to talk about the last scene that i saw that uh, i thought was very well done i don't think you like this scene so i'll be interested to hear but the talk show scene with him at the end you, you knew that someone was going to die it was building it up to be him and i really thought the whole time it was going to be murray but the way it happened and transpired and filled out, maybe it wasn't really realistic. I feel like they probably would have cut the camera. Who knows, honestly, uh, the way news media culture is. But Yes, I will say, yes, they have this thing, and I can't remember the name of it, a button where your live TV broadcasts, sorry to ruin the illusion for you, everybody, your live TV broadcasts are not live. They're about 30 seconds behind, so that if something like that happens or something that or a guest says something that they shouldn't say, they've got effectively what is in the business shorthand known as the oh shit button where they press that button and they just like go to black for like 15 or 30 seconds. So, no. <laughs> yeah, even if he had, did get shot, that wouldn't really be on there. For everyone in, in the 80s, they didn't have smartphones to capture that. So, uh, But either way, that scene leading up to it, where and then he tells his final joke, like just the way he delivered that line was just... It, Again, really more credit to his acting than anything. Uh, but the shot was just... I don't know. That that scene was maybe not a jaw-dropper. Maybe you thought it was shock value. But for me, it, it hit. It's like, wow, that was... I don't even know what to say it made me feel or what the end result was. But I thought it was the culmination of, of his um, transformation into the Joker. Was that quote-unquote joke he told. Yeah, I'd certainly agree with that. There was a little bit of shock value there. The acting was good. The line, I felt like, wasn't powerful. It felt like it was meant to be a lot deeper than it came across, I think. I, I have this issue, 
in a lot of films where I feel like, and the problem is, is because I do this too, <laughs> and I hate myself for it, is when a writer writes a line that you know they wrote and then looked at on the page and went, man, I'm profound. And you know <laughs> that whoever wrote that line about the what do you get when you cross an outsider and a society that keeps putting him down or whatever it is, and you get what you deserve, you know that whoever wrote that did exactly that. Like, they put down the pen, or they leaned back from the keyboard, and they went, yeah, that's the one. Which is fine. Be proud of what you write. Um, but it just didn't strike me quite quite as deep as it probably they thought it was. Uh, there is the only thing, if you want to be concerned about anything related to violence, here's what I'll say is that that, that is the line that you're going to have to look out for because that can certainly seem more so than anything else in the film. I feel like that seems like the rallying cry for anybody that does feel, you know, d discounted from society and I not trying to sound conspiracy theorist or anything like that, but that is really the biggest thing for concern. I I only have two more points, and I'm going to do one that I didn't like as much, and then one that I did, um, because the one that I didn't like as much, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on. The photo and note from Thomas Wayne seemed very ill-timed. It, it felt like a shot that needed to be in the movie, but the placement of it and the edit felt weird. Because he goes to Arkham, finds out that supposedly he was adopted and everything that Wayne said was true and his mother was just crazy. But then there's the letter or the picture of her with the writing on the back from Thomas Wayne that says, I love your smile. And I mean, you can read that again. Like you said, it's a lot of this movie is open for interpretation. You can read that in a lot of ways. Like, was it, was his mother crazy? And did she write that note to herself or did he write a note? being nice to her was it like something he did for i don't know all of his employees at christmas you know like how some businesses do where the boss writes a nice thing about each of you and he's like you know I, I love your smile kind of like a way of being like you know you always show up and you're always smiling and she saw that and read it as oh he loves me and if he loves me i must be in love with him and so we were together kind of thing or was his mother correct and was she being honest and I just wish that there had been a little bit more clarity there, and especially where it came in the film just confused it more. And if there had been some clarity, maybe it would have helped to show why Arthur kept going down that dangerous and violent path that he had. I, and I don't know, it just it felt like an important shot that was put absolutely in the wrong place. It was a little bit confusing, and I wonder if the point of that is it didn't matter after he had been through what he had and had seen. I mean, I, I feel like he really was adopted. Um, so I, I will say that. I don't know if she wrote that or if or I feel like maybe she wrote that or it was a letter from somebody else. Maybe I don't remember what the picture was. Uh, maybe if it was of her working or if it was signed Thomas Wayne, like maybe, someone else had given her that photo and she had signed it. I, I really do think that she had contrived that in her head, that romance. I had waffled on that a few times watching the movie. But again, I, I think in the Joker's mind, it doesn't matter because he is this unreliable narrator. And I, even if we were to reference the Dark Knight again, 
I, I feel like the Joker probably even believed every story he got where he got his scars. So, um, you know, I think he believes in these multiple choice realities and maybe they are real to him, even though the real reality is that he was adopted. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, I, I will agree insofar as I think at that point it it didn't matter to Fleck as a character I just feel like it mattered to us as an audience and I wish that they had yeah. given us more clarity for sure or it had that earlier in the movie so that it seemed like it was I don't know at that point it was like oh it was a fake I don't know having that after seemed a little bit odd yeah, I mean, you could have put it in a number of other places and it would have made sense one way or the other. The one thing that I did, or one thing that I did really like too was the uh, couple of stand-up comedian cameos that were in this movie that was really funny. Um, uh, Mark Marone being um, Murray's assistant secretary, uh, which was pretty funny. I, I actually didn't recognize him at first. Um, so, so that was funny seeing him in that role. And then Sam Morell or moral maybe um playing himself in the uh comedy club going on before arthur and it's funny i recognized him by voice so i was like oh wow that's that's sam moral and then they're like all right give it up one more time for sam moral i'm like oh he's playing himself so i thought it was i thought it was kind of cool in a movie that you know uh talks about or whose main character is trying to get into a life of stand-up to actually have some real life stand-ups in there was a, was a cool touch that I, uh, I really liked. Um, again, there were a lot of issues that I took with this movie, but that was something really cool. So Jacob, I'll pass it back to you for any final thoughts that you might have. Final thoughts, just to reiterate what I've said. I, I thought this movie was pretty brilliant. I thought there was many very, quite a number of different ways to interpret this movie and maybe it just resonated more for me due to upbringing or some other facet of my life but um it was a movie I flipped my views on I thought when I first saw the trailer I was going to hate it and as it grew nearer and nearer to release I started to open up more to it and so I was quite surprised that being said, I, I can see maybe where some interpretations uh, like yours, maybe you could take issue with it. Uh, it just wasn't the way I received it. And the thing with art is you can have all these different ways of viewing the same thing. Uh, and that's what makes these types of discussions really quite fun. Yeah, well, I'll say about it. I guess my final thoughts are that I'm glad that they did a lot of what they did. I talked, I and I have not only on the show, but in passing with you and with other friends, I've talked over and over about how if DC wants to get back into it, I think they, at least competing with Marvel, they need to go a different route than Marvel. They can't necessarily be the fun, bright colored things. They need to be gritty and dark and realistic. And I think that they did that very, very well here. And that gets huge points in my book um, because I think that they did a very, very good job of that. The real issue that I take, what it really comes down to for me, and this is, I guess, my closing thought, is that the team that put this together did an impeccable job of creating a pseudo-psychological, socio-political thriller-slash-horror movie. Like, an incredibly good job. Most of the details came down to a very well, talking about 
the clash between the upper class and lower class about people who have mental illnesses, the way we treat them, both us as individuals treat them and society treats them and the government treats them. But what I don't feel like they did a good job of was creating a Joker movie. I felt like that was thrown in here. And I feel like that was even more shown with the way that they just sort of pushed the little things with the Waynes in there because they're like, oh yeah, by the way, this is Joker and he's a Batman villain. So here, have tiny Batman kind of thing. Um, that said, again, for what, and this is sort of what I talked about in the spoiler-free section, for what I don't think they were trying to do, I think they did a really, really good job. For what they were trying to do, I don't feel like they did as good of a job. So again, like you said, art is up for all different types of interpretation, and like I, I agree with you. I, that's what makes this interesting and, and fun, and again, the way I interpreted it was just one that was a good film, just not the film that they intended to make, I think. <laughs> you can get at me on Twitter at PWG Grant. That is PWG G-R-A-N-T. I'd love to hear your thoughts. I would be interested in debating uh, you on who is the best Joker of all time, whether it be live action or otherwise. Leto apologists, I'm all here for it. Like I said, though, I will f like vehemently disagree with you on his method of getting into character. Uh, Jacob, how can people get at you if they want to tell you that, now this wasn't a brilliant film, this was, dude, this was so lowbrow, and they have, they have no idea what they're talking about, this is not the origin story, like, why are they trying to rebuild history, how, how can they let you know? <laughs> if you'd like to say that, or maybe even agree with me, I approve of either one of those. Uh, you can get me at Twitter, at PWGJacob, the letters P-W-G-J-A-C-O-B, you can DM me. Um, I was going to say, or personal message me, uh, or mention me in a tweet. I'll get back to you. I think this film will uh, has a lot of room for discussion. Obviously, one of our longer podcasts. And if you guys want to get in touch with the podcast at large, both of us, either to tell us how we were both wrong, and this is one <laughs> of those, one of the few movies that I think you can tell us how we were both wrong, even though we disagreed, <laughs> you can email us at 35millimeterpod at gmail.com. That is 35mmpod at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you guys. Uh, any feedback you have would be awesome. If you're not already aware, the podcast is on iTunes and Spotify. If you would like it on some other platform, please let us know, and we will do our best to get it there. We're just interested to hear where you guys would like it. But until next week, thank you guys so much for listening. Jacob, thank you so much for another fantastic podcast. We will see you all next week.